We began a sermon series last week in Philippians, uh, and we are continuing in that today. And I mentioned last week Paul's situation what, when he wrote this letter was that he was in prison in Rome. Uh, prison is never a good thing, but 2,000 years ago in Rome, it was probably even worse than what we might imagine now. Paul would have been chained constantly to a Roman guard. Hopefully not the same Roman guard all 24 hours of the day. Maybe they got, they got shifts, but... Um, but you also have to keep in mind that Paul is a person who at this point in his life had been through significant trauma, physical, uh, emotional, psychological trauma of, of everything you might expect. He had been beaten and uh, stoned and shipwrecked and bitten by a snake and all these different things. And so, you know, if you think about what Paul might have looked like at this point in his life, I mean, he might have looked something like Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame or... I mean, he, he literally may have been half scar tissue uh, just because of what he had been through. And so only, I mean, you can only imagine the, the, the aches, the pain, the constant throbbing uh, that he experienced as he sat chained to a Roman guard in this jail. And he was also facing death. We know he was facing death. He was on death row. He was uh, arrested and put in prison for doing something that amounted to treason in the Roman Empire. In fact, um, just for preaching the gospel, just for telling people about Jesus, he was accused of treason. Because you see, in the Roman Empire, if you were to say that anybody is Lord but Caesar, you were a traitor. And so that's what Paul did. He was put in jail. He was facing death. But what we see here in this letter is that in spite of all this, Paul rejoiced. He rejoiced. He was joyful in this situation. And we're going to look today at three reasons why this is the case. Why did, why did Paul have joy during this time? But first, I, I kind of want to throw out a definition to you of joy. Robert, or not Robert, Jim, sorry, Jim Engel says, joy is not an emotion. Joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. We might think about joy and we think about someone being just very happy or, or even um, laughing uncontrollably, but what I think this definition points out is that that may not be the case. It's not just an emotion. It's, a, it's almost a worldview. It's the way I see the world, that God is in control, and so no matter what happens, I can be, I can be at rest. I can be joyful. Let's look at the text and see this play out in Paul's letter. We'll start by reading verses 12 through 18. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
So Paul's first reason for joy here is that his chains opened the door for the preaching of the gospel. Him being in prison meant the advancement of the gospel. So how many soldiers do you think might have been chained up to Paul over his time in in jail? I mean, I I have no idea. But just think about, let's just say they they took eight-hour shifts, you know, three of them per day, chained to Paul. What is the over-under on the amount of those hours that each one of those guards heard Paul talking about Jesus? I mean, out of eight hours, is it seven and a half? Seven and a half hours of straight Jesus talk? Probably, knowing Paul, that's probably all he talked about with these guys. He's like, oh, sweet, you're chained to me now? Guess what? Here's what you're going to hear about. Jesus, 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 all day long. We, we can guess this is probably true because guess what it says? The whole imperial guard heard about Jesus because of Paul, whether directly from him or from their buddies who, who were chained to Paul. So Paul is taking this as an opportunity to share the gospel with Roman soldiers. We also know that Paul's risk here, his, his joy uh, as he shared the gospel in prison, served to embolden the Christians in Rome. So they're, remember, they're living in Rome. They're a church. They're probably a house church. And they're under the same threat that Paul was. If they go out and they share the gospel, they could be thrown in jail too. But what happens? They see Paul in jail. They see that he's, he's in any trial, but he's, he's still got joy. He's, he's resolute. He's trusting in the Lord and emboldened them to then go out and share the gospel in Rome. So this is, this is the result of Paul's trust in God's sovereignty. This is the result of Paul believing what we just heard from, from the definition of joy, that the joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. This is what resulted in, in Paul believing that. He believed with all his heart that no matter what happened to him, God was in control. And look what happened. Prison guards, a, a church that was afraid, all believing the gospel and being willing to share it despite the risk. So that's the positive. But not, not everything was positive because he also says that some people around, maybe in Rome, were preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. They didn't have good motives for preaching the gospel. They, they were up, up there somewhere preaching, and yet the reason they were doing so is, is maybe financial gain or maybe fame or something like that. And at the same time, they're also disparaging Paul. They're like, you see that guy, Paul? Look what happened to him. He's in jail. What a fool. Somehow that would, I guess they thought, would, would advance their fame and, their, and maybe their money. We see this today. We have preachers who go on TV and tell you that they're preaching the gospel, but if they're really going to preach the gospel, they really just need a jet. They, they need you to give them money so that they can buy a $65 million jet so they can fly around the world and preach the gospel. Okay, well... I'm not sure, I don't want to cast doubt on anybody's motives, but that seems like maybe that's about selfish ambition more than it is about the gospel. But here's what Paul would say to that. He says, I don't care. So what? So what if they cast shame and derision on me? So what if they have wrong motives? You know what's happening? They're preaching the gospel. And they they may not have the right motives. They may be preaching under pretense, but God's going to use it. God can take and use anything to advance the gospel, to advance his kingdom. And that's what happened here. So Paul's like, I don't care. If they're out there preaching, as long as it's true, they're being used by God and they don't even know it. 
So Paul is not bitter. He's not angry. He's not hopeless. As I imagine I might be if I'm in that prison cell chained to a Roman guard who probably doesn't smell very good. Paul probably smells worse. But he, he has this settled certainty that God is in control and that's what drives him. That's what gives him joy. He saw that, you know, I'm, I'm in this trial and I don't really like it, but, but it's going to advance the gospel so I can be in it and I can be okay. And he, he experienced that, you know, multiple times in his life. I mentioned that he had been beaten and stoned and all that. Well, there's this place in Acts, Acts chapter 14, if you go read that later on. He goes to a city called Lystra, and at Lystra, he's preaching the gospel, and, and actually people are they're, they're listening. But then here come all these people from Antioch, these, these Jews who had previously been angry at Paul. They followed him, and when they found him, they started stoning him. They're throwing big rocks at him. I mean, that was like how you executed somebody in Jewish law. Well, they didn't kill him. They just took him out and threw him outside the city like garbage and left him for dead. The next day, he got up and went to another town and preached the gospel. And then he went back to Lystra and preached the gospel there again. I mean, can you imagine, like, if I had been hit with, like, 25 rocks, I would be laid up in my house in bed for a month. Paul's preaching the gospel the next day. He's like, look, Jesus told me to preach, so I'm going to preach until, I'm, until it kills me. And it, and it eventually did. But here's what drove Paul. William Hendrickson has this quote. He says, with Paul, the primary question was not, what is going to happen to me? It was, how is the gospel cause affected by whatever happens to me? His answer was, it is actually being advanced the gospel cause is actually being advanced by my imprisonment. So this is where I ask myself, and I want to ask you, what's your primary question? If you have to go through a trial, if you know you're, you're in a trial, what do you start to ask? How do you view it? Um, how do you gauge the way you'll navigate that trial? Um, may, maybe, like most people, like me so often, you think, oh, what's going to happen to me? How, how is this going to disadvantage me? How is this going to cause me pain or discomfort? I mean, that's, that's what I think about so many times when I'm facing a trial. And that's what most normal people think about. But then when we do that, we start to see that trial as a loss. It's, it's negative. It's, it's a loss. It drives me to bitterness. It drives me to fear. It drives me to anger or to hopelessness. But if we change our question, and if we say, how does the gospel cause, or how is the gospel cause affected by whatever happens to me, then everything can change. We have a way to make sense of our suffering. Beyond that, we actually have a way where we can see that God redeems our suffering. It's not just that, oh yeah, it's for a greater purpose. No, it's for God is using it to advance his kingdom. It's not just that you're part of something bigger, it's that you're part of something eternal. God redeems our suffering. He redeems our trials. You know, a, new, a nuance to this is that maybe the hardest part of a trial is that we really struggle with them when we don't see them coming. 
when it just hits us, you know? Um, if we know it's coming, we actually we can kind of deal with it. Like when we went last November to adopt Caleb in Taiwan, we knew we were going to have to quarantine in a hotel for 15 days and not be able to leave. We knew that was coming. We were not happy about it. We we're like, that's going to be terrible. But we knew it was coming. So we sort of prepared ourselves mentally for it. Jennifer packed like every toy in our house for the kids. Uh, and we brought it to Taiwan. And, and it was, she did awesome. I was okay. I had the World Series to watch. So that was good. But we knew it was coming. If, if we had gotten off the airplane in Taipei, and they said, oh, no, you can't do anything until you've quarantined for 15 days in a hotel room and never leave, I think that would have been a game changer. We would have been like, excuse me? <laughs> you want us to do what? It matters if we know it's coming or not. But here's, here's what I want you to understand and what I need to tell myself. God always knows it's coming. God is never surprised. He is in control. Your trial, my trial. He not only knows this coming, he's allowed it to happen. And so if we can try to, by faith, view our trials through that lens, the same way that God sees it, that can change things. That can change the way we endure during a difficult time. Now, you might hear that and think, okay, that's fine for Paul. The apostle Paul, super Christian Paul, right? And he was, I mean, he basically was like the fourth person of the Trinity, right? I mean, he, almost. But I think you got to understand that that's not the way Paul saw himself at all. I mean, really, if you think about it, the only qualification there was for being an apostle was that you had been with Jesus. And Paul was with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then maybe later, we don't know, but that was all it was. It wasn't like Paul was something special. He was just a guy that Jesus said, I'm going to use you, and Jesus used him. I guess I'm trying to say that this is something that is available to every single believer in Christ. It's not just for super believers. In fact, I would say, let's just get rid of that category altogether. Every single one of us who's a believer in Christ can have this joy, Right now, because God's in control. And that's what we're going to see as we look to the next part of the text, verses uh, 19 through 24. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My, de my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." So the second reason for Paul's joy here that we see is that Jesus was the treasure of his life and the reward of his death. Yeah, he was an apostle, and in a way that did make him special, but again, Paul would say, 
There is nothing special about me. In fact, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm just a guy who, by the way, lived a terrible, murderous life before I met Jesus. And now Jesus has saved me and he's using me. I mean, his joy, his passion for the gospel, it was, it was only a result of Jesus in his life. Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, we, we sing this verse sometimes in, in church. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you go ask Paul, or if you could, maybe when you get to heaven, you ask Paul, who are you, man? He's going to say, I am Christ. I belong to Jesus. That's who I am. My identity is Christ. It's not about me. It's Christ. Any life I have, anything good in me, it's Christ. It's not about me. And he's, he's growing me. He's using me. And anything good that comes out of me is, is for his glory. I don't know about you, but often for me, it's all about me. It's all about my desires. I wake up in the morning. I think about what am I going to do today? What do I want to do today? What do I want to accomplish? What, what are my desires? What are my needs? And if I don't get those desires, I don't get those needs, I can, I can crumble. I can lose hope. I can get angry. All kinds of stuff happens. So I might, I might not say this. I might say, yeah, to, for me to live is Christ. But if you look at my life, you look at my actions, you might think, I don't know. Sometimes it looks like for him to live is Morgan. And Maybe you can relate to that. My needs, my desires so often determine how I live. My choices, they're, they're about what's, how is this going to affect me? But then what happens when my, my needs, my desires, my choices conflict with the word of God? Is there a, is there a breaking point for me where I'll say, okay, yes, to this for Jesus, yes, this for Jesus, but not this. This I, I can't give him. And look, Paul was not perfect. He was a sinner. Like I said, chief of sinners. At least that's what he thought. Did he have a breaking point? We know, we know he had a thorn in his side. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians where he says, I have a, a thorn in my flesh and I've pleaded with God to take it away three times. And he keeps saying, no, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so we know that Paul had struggles. But here's the difference. He was repentant. He lived a life of, of faith and repentance. He kept coming back to Jesus after his sin struggles and saying, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's the life of a Christian. It's not a life of perfection. It's not a life of being a, a superstar Christian. It's repentance. And so when we live our lives for Christ, we see, you know, like, like Paul had where he he was blinded, and, and then Jesus removed the scales from his eyes, and he saw things differently. I mean, that's, that's what a Christian has and, and is able to do. We see things differently. We see things through the lens of, of the Bible and through Jesus and through the, through the lens of what the Holy Spirit is doing. We see that Jesus gave his life and shed his own blood for our sins, and we see that he is worthy for us to live our lives for him. Now, maybe we can get that. We can get behind that. We kind of understand the concept of, you know, I want to live my life for something greater. But what about what Paul says next? Because next thing he says is, he said, to live is Christ. Then he says, and to die is gain. To die is gain. Let's see what happens if we put that on a coffee cup 
and try to sell it at Starbucks. No one's buying that coffee cup. Our world, our society, does not see death as gain in any way, shape, or form. Death is total loss. Death is the end. Death is hopelessness. That's what our society thinks. That's why our society is so scared all the time. We don't even want to talk about death. Because that's it to them. But to us, yes, we can fear dying. Yes, we know that death is sad. Yes, we grieve when someone dies and we mourn their loss. And don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't grieve or mourn someone's loss. It is absolutely proper for us to do that. Jesus did it. But it is not the end. In fact, Paul said, if I die, that's a win because I'm with Jesus. He's my treasure. He's my reward. I will be with him when I die. So I, I kind of want to die. It's so weird for us to think about that. We don't think that way, but he says, 2 Corinthians 5, I prefer to be away from my body and at home with the Lord. <laughs> That's what I want. That's what he's saying. And he didn't hate his life. It wasn't like he was miserable. Like, I mean, he probably was in a lot of pain, but he didn't hate his life. His life had purpose and meaning. He just didn't know what to do. He's like, they're both good. If I'm, I'm going to die, I'll be with Jesus. If I'm going to live, it'll be gospel fruit. People will come to know the Lord. People will be discipled. You ever thought about how you would take your money if you won the lottery? Like, would you take it in a lump sum up front? Or would you take it in installments over 30 years? I, I go back and forth. It's fun to dream, right? You know, but... Either way, you won. I mean, in the, in the end, who cares? You won. And that's what Paul feels like right now in this text. I won the lottery. If I'm here, I get to live my life for Jesus. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. I can't decide. Can't decide. Who knows? Who knows what I'll do? He had Jesus. So maybe you're like, well, that's great, but I don't really see what's so great about Jesus. I mean, he's some guy that lived 2,000 years ago and wrote some, well, he didn't even write the words. He spoke the words in a Bible, and they're in the red letters, but we'll talk more about this next week. C.J. Dawes will preach next week on Philippians 2, and we'll see how Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. It means he always existed, never had a beginning, He's equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he's the Son of God. And yet he left his equality with God aside. He set it aside. He said, I'm not going to grasp onto that, even though it's my right. I'm going to leave heaven and come to earth. I'm going to take on the form of a man, and I'm going to subject myself to all the miseries of of being a human being. And remember, this is 2,000 years ago before they had Google and DoorDash and air conditioning. It, it was pretty miserable to be a human being. And yet he subjected himself to that, all of it, except for sin. He's the only one who's never sinned. And he became poor. He didn't become a rich man. He became a poor man. And then later on in life, he allowed himself to be treated as a criminal. You know that? The Jews and the Romans both hated Jesus to the point that they treated him as a criminal. They, and they didn't even give him a trial. They just sent him straight to a cross. And by the way, the cross was the preferred style of execution that the Romans used uh, for, their, for their most troublesome prisoners. 
wasn't necessarily always like the death penalty for if you just committed murder. It was like if you committed a particularly scandalous crime, like treason or something like that. Um, so by Jesus being put on a cross, they were saying this is the worst kind of criminal. It's kind of like today if we sent someone to the electric chair. Same thing. But Jesus did that. Why? Because if not, then that's our execution. We're the ones being executed. We're the ones who deserve death for what we have done and failed to do. And so Jesus is saying, I took on your execution on myself so that you can have life, so that you can have eternal life, so that you can have righteousness, so that you can be clean, so that your sins can be forgiven. And this is the only way that can happen. We cannot find forgiveness for sins any other way but in Jesus Christ being our Savior. There's no earning it. There's no doing good things to earn it. There's no karma. There's no none of that. Jesus Christ executed on a cross, switching places with us. That is the only way to salvation. And so that's what's so great about Jesus. And that's what our eternal hope is, is that we will be with him forever in the end. And I went to a conference one time and I heard a guy say something about hope that I thought was so profound. This guy, Jason Cook, he said, hope is borrowing the joy of tomorrow. My friends, tomorrow in eternity, we're going to have joy that is unmatched, unthinkable, unfathomable. We can't even describe it. That's what awaits us. We borrow from that joy now in our trials, in our times of suffering. We borrow from that joy, and that's what gets us through. That's what allows us to see our trial in a different way. And look, I don't want to insinuate that it's wrong to be afraid of dying. I think Jesus was afraid of dying. He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed to his father, asking him, take this cup from me. A guy named Michael Cassidy said, I don't fancy the process of dying, but I am incredibly excited about death. I think that's a healthy way to look at it. That's what Paul thought about it. So as we look at the last part of this passage, verses 25 through 30, we'll see that, in fact, he did want to, in the end, delay his death. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw, I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul's third and final reason for joy that we'll talk about this morning. He saw his brothers and sisters in Christ living gospel-worthy lives. That brought him joy to know that. Again, he knew that it was better for him to be with Jesus, but he decided that in this instance, he wanted to stay. He wanted to live his life. He wanted to disciple people and share the gospel with people. He wanted to keep on making sure all those Roman guards heard about Jesus. And he wanted to see 
his followers, the Christians in Rome, the Christians in Philippi, wherever else, he wanted to see them living gospel-worthy lives. What does that mean? He lists some things here. He talks about standing firm in the truth, believing the truth of the gospel. He talks about being united and how when we have truth and unity, then we strive for the gospel together. Maybe we disagree on small things, but on, on the big things, we are united and we can strive for the gospel together. He talks about having assurance of salvation. He's, he's, I mean, we rest in the promises of God. When we live a, a gospel-worthy life, that means we are resting in the promises of God that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. But I want to focus on one other thing that he says here. He says in verse 28, uh, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. We talked a lot about joy, and there's more talk of joy coming as we continue on this series. It's a big theme here, but, but think about this. What's the opposite of joy? As I mentioned earlier, I, I don't think it's grief. I don't think it's sadness because, again, these are emotions that are natural and normal, and even Jesus felt these things. So I don't think that Jesus was a joyless person. I think the opposite of Jesus or the opposite of joy is actually fear. You know, if, if joy is this settled certainty that God is in control, then what is a what would we call an unsettled uncertainty that maybe God's not in control? Well, that's fear. And, and not just any old fear. Like I'm saying, I'm talking about being controlled by fear, where fear dominates your life. And I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord either. The Bible actually tells us to fear the Lord. And I would argue that the fear of the Lord actually produces joy. That in a way, they're synonyms. The fear of the Lord and a settled, uns- a settled certainty that God is in control, they're kind of the same thing. Either way, we're saying God is my authority. I look to God. I submit to God. I trust God. He's in control. So fear, the fear of the Lord produces joy. The fear of anything else where we are controlled by that fear is anti-joy. That's why the Bible says hundreds of times, do not fear. Someone somewhere said something like, uh, the Bible says that 365 times, like one for every day, except for leap year. And uh, I don't know if that's true. I haven't looked that up. I probably should. But it's cool. If that's the case, you got one verse for every day where the, where the Bible is telling you, you don't need to fear. You don't need to be controlled by fear. Have no fear. Do not fear. God is in control. What circumstance or trial do you feel anxious about right now? We all got them. We're all going through something. Is it controlling you? Is the fear controlling you? Or do you really believe that God has ordained it, that God knows what you're going through, that God knows the outcome? He is in control. He is not surprised. Maybe Maybe you're a thing, like what is it for you? Maybe you fear another person, what that other person might do to you. Maybe you fear a hidden sin. Maybe you are fearful of failure. You fear suffering. Maybe you fear death. God is in control. 
of all of it. But when we live in a way that fear controls us, we are living our lives as though God's not in control. We're living our lives as though he's not really there, as though he he can't do anything about it, as though he can't redeem our suffering. But listen to this. We can have certainty that he's in control and that he's good. Psalm 115.3, just one of the many places in the Bible that says this. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There's nothing that happens that isn't what God allows or pleases. John 16.33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. How can we fear when the Son of God, our Savior, has overcome the world? He's he's defeated the worst things there are. He's defeated death. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated sin. What else is there? Take heart. He has overcome the world. If we live according to this, if we see the world this way, we can have joy and we can rejoice no matter what. Let's pray together.